It's okay. That's supposed to be on there. That's very good. Hello. Hello, test. Hello. Oh, the rotten stone is here again. I uh, sometimes have the feeling that uh, one night I'm going to be dragged into this studio, kicking and screaming, fighting every last inch of the way. Oh, the fantastic treadmill of existence. Oh, incidentally, isn't it great that uh, finally that day has arrived again? We can uh, breathe another fantastic sigh of relief and uh, once again start dreaming the ridiculous idiotic dreams, which, of course, uh, we will have forgotten by the middle of next week again and start all over again and up and down at Gaussian. My George. You know, I, uh, there is definite proof that when they finished the pyramids, at least five or six well-known editorial writers of the period just felt that they didn't work out. It just didn't do it. it didn't make it for them. Well, you know. What is it, the best laid... No, no, I mean the best laid plans. Rotten people. Bring it up there, baby. I'm not a very good singer, but I've got a lot of spirit, you know. And after all, that's what it's about, you know, singing. <laughs> you recognize what I'm talking about, you know. Well, there's nothing duller than Robert Goulet singing. <laughs> you know what I mean, man? Real sing- you know, speaking of uh, real singing, since it's a big type fist fight on Friday night, since uh, might as well go right down to the basis of what Friday's about, man. It is about life. You know, there, there's, a whole, there's a whole mystique about it. In fact, I just talked to a guy on the phone, see, and he says to me, very official guy in an office, he says, listen, he says, I don't bug nobody on Friday. He says, I don't call nobody, I don't bug nobody, I make no plans. I just sit there and hold on and figure if I can last it out to the end of the day, I am ready to make the scene. So it is Friday. And since it is Friday, we might as well discuss about, you know, we must touch, just touch a little lightly on that, that fantastic, that, that, that boiling, bubbling, hissing, steaming Fleischmann's cake of yeast that is existence. Now tonight, how about a special salute, huh? Oh, you just hold it in there. I'll give you the cue for that. A special salute uh, to people who have risen above and beyond the ordinary fist-fighting, moiling, walking around, uh, scratching uh, level of ordinary existence, who've really gone on to do it. And we on this radio station feel that once in a while some of them great people should get saluted. Bring me a little music in there. Salute music, please. Come on, bring it up there, man. How much? I'm going to lay here at a... I'm going to lay here in the kitchen, man. Baba, With my feet out in the hall. With my feet hanging out there in the hall. And I'm going to sleep my life away, baby, because of what you've done to me. Going to drink muddy water. I'm going to drink muddy water till my hat floats out to sea. Because of what you've done to me. <laughs> oh, baby. Baby, you're going to be sorry. You're going to walk around yelling and hollering, crying. But I will be gone because of what you've done to me. Maybe you can just push a man just so far. That calls for a little kazoo here, which is a genuine life salute instrument.
Thank you, Andy. Uh, now, I'll reset that because we will need that. That's very emergency. All right, all set in there. We are saluting tonight's hero of the 20th century existence. And uh, already out there, oh, one little word of warning. Uh, if you're a woman or a child, this is not for women and children, so I'm going to have to warn you here. We have a salute tonight. A uh, news note here that's come from overseas, from behind the Iron Curtain. And it isn't often that we salute magnificent achievements in the Iron Curtain countries. Because we don't often hear about the really magnificent achievements that occur in the Iron Curtain. Now, by magnificent achievements, of course, that's a matter of the definition. <laughs> uh, we are tonight going to salute Olga Batanagova. Olga Batanagova. Last year, Soviet government proudly declared... Olga Batanagova, heroine mother of 1965, awarded medal for giving birth to her tenth child, become on-the-spot heroine mother. This year, investigation reveals that ten different men fathered the Batanagova children, that eight children are now living in various orphanages, and that the last two are ill and weak from undernourishment, Olga and her latest lover having spent the children's allowance on vodka. So tonight we salute Olga, one of the primo swingeros of our time. A lady who swings. Hero and mother. Oh, that ain't the first time that's happened, you know. As a matter of fact, not long ago, there was a beauty contest that was won right here in these United States by this fantastic, bikini-clad, fantastic beauty. And it wasn't until three days later that they discovered she was a man. Da, da, da. I'm not kidding you. That caused a little confusion in the front office. A little confusion there. <laughs> and incidentally, after he was discovered, he got very mad. He says, I demand equal rights. Why not? Why not? Why can't I be in a beauty contest, for God's sakes? For all, the chicks are getting all their equal rights. You know, speaking of great... Uh, great uh, Great swingers of all time. Would you please reset that in there for me? Because we're going to use that. Speaking of great swingers of all time, uh, the classic swinger, and this is a, you know, it's a Friday night type show, the classic swinger. Now, when I say classic, I mean classic. It's like Tristan and Isolde, Romeo and Juliet. It's like, uh, you know, great classic people who have achieved, who have achieved status far and above and beyond their corporeal bodies. People who could conceivably have one time existed, you know. It's hard to believe that at one time Hamlet was walking around. There is, you know, the, the, they say that, uh, that Shakespeare wrote Hamlet based on a real guy, <laughs> a real Hamlet. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can't conceive it. You can't conceive of Electra actually being on the scene, you know, bringing down the kingdom, blowing everything up and yelling around at Orestes and the whole bit. You know, you just can't think of it. But there they were. And they have achieved what is called classical status. Tristan and Isolde, Romeo and Juliet. Well, America, you know, has given a classical, fantastic pair of swingers 
to the world. And very few people during their time recognized the classical creation. I'm sure the people who were walking around and Electra was living down in the next, uh, down the next street. They were, oh, what do you mean, Electra? What do you mean? So, but what's so great about Electra? I mean, she's just mad all the time. She's a sore head. What do you mean? They would never have recognized Electra <laughs> as playing a part in practically every drama that's been written for, you know, for 22,000 years. Can you imagine this guy named Harold Oedipus sitting there on a rock? You know, he tears his eyes out and yells and screams and something. Look at that. Look at that. What a, talk about a spoiled brat. Your mama's baby, you know. Who would have known that Oedipus was to go down in history as the classical mama's baby of all time, you know. <laughs> the definitive mama's baby, you might say. <laughs> oh, yeah, indeed. Uh, and uh, we have given we have given a couple of classical characters to the world that we don't recognize. We don't recognize them as that because they're us, you know. It's very hard uh, to recognize. As, uh, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, it does, in, in the very basic sense. And these two people have appeared in European movies. They have appeared in European plays. They have appeared in European music. They've appeared in American movies. They've appeared in American plays. America. And I think for the next 150 years, these were the, will be the two classical characters that have come out of American... Along with Captain Ahab. Yeah, there'll be Captain Ahab, and there'll be these two. And I can't think of anybody else, really. Maybe Babbitt, in a strange way. Because, you know, Babbitt really was Willie Loman. Better done. Babbitt was Willie Loman with a sense of humor. And much closer to the real Willie Lomans of the world, George Follinsby Babbitt. And I think of the classical characters that America will have produced in this era, in this, by era, I mean historically, since about 1810, you know, something like that. There will be Ahab. There will be George Follinsby Babbitt. Uh, there could, could he conceivably even be Elmer Gantry. Maybe eventually will emerge as another one of those great characters that define an American thing, an American way, an American, you know, an American thing. And these two, would you please bring me on a little of that rotten, raunchy... No, no, number one. Uno, one, numero uno. Just bring it on. Some of that raunchy, low-down grinding. This is real American, man. This is not... This is not French music you're listening to, friends. This does not come out of a beer stube in Berlin. Oh, no. As pants on a rudy, rudy toot. Oh, boy, you can just smell the stale beer. Can't you? You can smell the old cigar butts. You can smell the spittoon down there next to the pool table for Metnaway. Oh, yeah. Frankie and Johnny were lovers. Oh, lordy, how they could love. Swore to be true to each other, just as true as the stars above. Oh, yeah, he was her man, but he'd done her wrong. Frankie, she was a good woman, just like everyone knows. She'd give her man a hundred dollars just to buy himself some clothes. He was her man, but he'd done her wrong. Frankie went to Memphis. She went on a morning train. She paid a hundred dollars for Johnny. <laughs> a watch and chain. Yeah, he was her man. But he'd done her wrong. Yeah, poor Frankie, she lived down in a crib house. Crib house with only one door. Gave all her money to Johnny to throw on the parlor girl's floor. He was her man. 
but he done her wrong. Johnny went down to the corner saloon. He called for a glass of beer. Frankie went down in an hour or so and said, Has Johnny Dean been here? He was her man. But he done her wrong. I'll not tell you any stories. I'll not tell you any lies. Johnny left here about an hour ago with a girl named Nellie Bly. Yeah, he was her man, all right. But he done her wrong. And Frankie went down to the pawn shop. She bought herself a little 44. She aimed it at the ceiling and shot a big hole in the floor. Yeah, he was her man. But he done her wrong. Frankie went down to the hotel. She rang that hotel bell. Stand back, all you floozies, or I'll blow you all to hell. She was her man. Yes, sir. But he done her wrong. Frankie looked over the transom, and there before her eyes, yes, there on the chair sat Johnny, making love to Nellie Bly. He was her man, all right. But he done her wrong. Uh, Frankie threw back her kimono. She took out her bright forty-four. Ruta toot toot. Three times she shot. Right through that hardwood door. She shot her man. But he done her wrong. Johnny, he grabbed off his Stetson. Oh, my God. Frankie, don't shoot. But Frankie put her finger on the trigger. And again, it went. Ruta toot toot. For he was her man. But he done her wrong. Uh, Set it back, quick. Oh, oh. Any place. You don't have to cue it. Just set it back, man. Oh. 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 Roll me over. Roll me over once, doctor. Roll me over. Slow. Roll me over onto my right side. Oh, for those bullets. They hurt so. Yeah, she finished her, man. But he done her wrong. Bring on your rubber-tired carriages. Bring on your rubber-tired hack. Take my daddy to the cemetery. But bring his suit and his wristwatch back. (laughs) Best part of my man that's done me wrong. Thirteen girls dressed in mourning. Thirteen girls dressed in black. They all went out to the cemetery. But only twelve of the men came back. Only twelve of the men came back. Thirteen girls dressed in mourning, thirteen men dressed in back. They all went out to the cemetery, but only twelve of the men came back. They left her man that had done her wrong. Oh, bring round a thousand policemen. Bring them around today to lock me in the dungeon and throw the key away. Judge, I shot my man because he done me wrong. Yes, put me in the dungeon. Put me in that cell. Put me where the north wind blows. From the southeast corner of hell, I shot my man when he done me wrong. Frankie then said to the warden, What are they going to do? The warden said to Frankie, It's a pardon, my girl, to you. You shot your man because he done you wrong. Yeah. The sheriff come round this morning and said it was all for the best. He said her lover Johnny was nothing but a damn pest. He was her man. 
nobody done her wrong. Now, it wasn't any kind of murder. In either the second or the third, this woman simply dropped her lover. Like a hunter drops a bird. He was her man. Yeah, but he done her wrong. And now Frankie... Oh, Frankie sits in the parlor. Neath a, neath a great big old electric fan. Telling all her little sisters to beware. To beware that rotten man. They'll do you wrong. They'll do you wrong. Yes, Arita, they'll, they'll do you wrong every time. Well, I want to tell you... The last time I saw pretty Frankie, she sure, she sure was looking mighty fine. The last time I saw Frankie, diamonds, diamonds, you wouldn't believe it. Diamonds as big as horse birds. She was looking fine. She was the owner of a big silver mine. Great big fat old paying off silver mine. She was minus her man that had done her wrong, not out of chance. Now, this story, friends, has no moral. The story has no end. This story only goes to show that there ain't no good in men. That's all. No more. No end. It just goes to show. Yep. He was a man. Johnny. But... He done her wrong. Just like any man. But that's the end of the story. But it really ain't no end. Cha 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 he done it wrong all the way, man. Whoa, whoa. That's it. <laughs> now, that is a great... And by the way, that was the original version, in case you're interested. And for those of you who think it's a song and all that, that's not true. Now, that was a ballad, a written ballad that is unknown. No one knows who wrote it. No one knows who and where it came from. But the suspicion is that it came from St. Louis. It came from St. Louis around about the time of the great gold rushes. About the time the mountain men were moving through St. Louis and pushing off and going on west. Those big old swinging doors. Frankie met Johnny that night. And sitting above them on the second floor, quietly rocking, was Nellie Bly. Yeah. Talking about perfidy, this is WOR AM and FM in New York. Miller highlight the bright, clear taste in beer. Miller highlight the champagne of bottled beer. There's only one champagne of bottled beer, sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Miller highlight. Brewed from a century-old recipe, Miller High Life has a rich heritage and tradition. A bright, clear taste. Unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. Available on tap, in cans, and in familiar crystal clear bottles. Miller High Life is always sparkling. 
flavorful, distinctive. Enjoy Miller High Life yourself. I doubt whether it was Miller High Life they served at that joint that Frankie and Johnny are <laughs> Yes, Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. You know, speaking of that, have you ever wondered when you've watched old movies and you see these hard men, you know, with the with the with the square grizzled jaws that come into the place called the Silver Dollar? And the year is eighteen forty six, and they come in, you can hear their spurs jangling. And they go up to this raw plank and they say, Whiskey. Or they say, Red Eye. Have you just wondered how that stuff tasted? I mean, how that went down? What it was really like? What it really tasted like? I've often wondered about that. You know, there's some great descriptions of it. One of the best descriptions I've ever read of it was in a book by Thomas Berger called Little Big Man. And he describes that kind of whiskey that they drank. And he said that there was a time. Should I hold this a little bit later? All right, let's. Because uh, I want to tell you about that. Uh, speaking of uh, commercials, let's get down with the Rover here, very, <laughs> very fast. We got the Rover 2000 here, a great English automobile. And uh, you know, it's funny uh, how how uh, certain countries you can you can almost measure uh, a country's attitude towards its people and itself by the kind of uh, automobiles it produces, literally. Uh, for example, you know, it's, it's interesting to note that the Japanese cars have practically no character of their own. That the Japanese inveterate copiers have taken, and they, they turn out a good car, by the way, they have, they have taken little bits and pieces from everywhere. And you look, you see a Japanese car going, you say, it's a helmet. No, it's not a helmet. It's a, it's a, it's a, and it turns out to be Japanese. The English, on the other hand, show their attitude towards life. They, 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 they make a lot of cars for little people, you know. Uh, there's all kinds of little bitty cars like minis and all that. For the ordinary walking around Englishman, this shows a, a, a country that is stratified, definitely has class distinctions. On the other hand, they make Bentleys, Armstrong Sidleys. They make Daimlers. They make the great Princeton Shearline Austin. They make the Rover. These are not cars for war- ordinary walking around people. Do you agree? They are not, man. <laughs> and, and yet in America, all cars are kind of made for everybody. You know, you, almost anybody. Can, you know, it, it really is true. They're, they're, they're kind of universal, and that's why they all kind of look alike. Well, there's a distinct difference in class, uh, class levels in cars in Britain. And if you want to uh, see one of the upper-class cars, believe me, both from a technical standpoint and uh, from the, the way it goes, it's the Rover 2000, a beautiful machine, small Oh, boy, but does it mean business. The Rover 2000. And speaking of business, we will be at the limelight tomorrow night from 10.30 until uh, our usual scene from 10.30 until midnight, fist-fighting and yelling. Have you ever heard that show? Haven't you? Well, man, you, you must, really. This is alive. You know, you're, you're, you're only getting half of me here, you know. You're getting the, uh, the sissy half. Uh, down on a, down on the limelight. Seriously, the limelight. This is the place where I do my famous underwater ballet. It's all performed, of course. I, I do my famous uh, roller derby imitations. I uh, I do the. Uh, I've got a few things that I've got working down there. I do my famous walk down uh, at the OK Corral. A lot of stuff I do now. I sing and yell and holler, tell dirty stories, play the banjo, and it's done at the limelight, which is down in the village. And we will be on from. 10.30 until midnight, as per usual, on Saturday, okay? 
Oh, oh yeah, you know, speaking, getting back to this, uh, getting back to this, this thing of the raunchy life. Now, we're cutting back to real life late. Getting back to the raunchy life, the life of Frankie and Johnny, the life of these, these, these bars, uh, the, not even bars, they call them saloons. You know, it's very hip and very chic today to call a place a saloon. That's kind of a fate. Uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, they do. Uh, you know, they, and you go on, and these are the guys sitting around in little skinny pants, and uh, they're, they're sitting around there uh, with their girls with the long blonde hair, and they're wearing skinny pants, and they call it something like uh, Rawhide Saloon. Or, yeah, yeah, there's one here in, in, uh, in New York uh, where, where the skinniest people of all go, you know, the little, and the very, it's kind of chic, a lot of Madison Avenue guys going in. And, and their idea of a really rough afternoon is to walk for 15 minutes behind their power lawnmower. That's really out there working the, the wilderness. That's, you know, they come back, oh, boy, it's, nature sure is hell. And, uh, oh, well, that's the kind, and you know what the name of this joint is? You never saw anything like it. It's you know, I mean it's, you know, it's great looking, but it's got it's got a raw, rough looking exterior. You can see little splashes of blood on it. And it's got a couple of gashes where knives have gone down. And it's called the Yukon Saloon. <laughs> the Yukon Saloon. <laughs> and you know the funny part of it is up in the Yukon, they've got saloons up there now called the Madison Avenue Boat. Yeah, yeah. You get up there, and they don't. You know, they they want to pretend like they're somewhere else, and so so you get up in places like Anchorage. A friend of mine was in Anchorage. He says there's a place up there called La Figaro. He says in Anchorage, La Figaro, and he sits. You know, he goes in, and the guys got their parkas, and they come stomping in with their with their snowshoes, and they're you know they knocking off the snow and the, the icicles off their beard, and they sit down in La Figaro, Maison La Figaro. <laughs> you know, it's a weird scene. And I've often wondered, because I think mankind's ability to dream of, of a fantastic existence somewhere else knows no bounds. It's like, it's, like the, it's like the great cargo ship cult. You know of the great cargo ship cult? Oh, boy, that's a wild one. That's, uh, about half of the Polynesian islands now have uh, gotten under the spell of the great cargo ship cult. And that, of course, is a cult that says that someday over the ocean will come this fantastic cargo ship. And it's going to be just beautiful. It's going to be glowing. And it's going to come and it's going to bring happiness and everything. It's going to bring everything to them. And the great cargo ship is being sent by LBJ. That's true. You know, there's an LBJ cult going on, very strong, you know. And, and they change they change gods with whoever is in. You know, it used to be the great Kennedy, the great uh, Kennedy in the sky, yeah. and there was the great Truman before that. You know, they make totem poles and yell and holler, and, <laughs> and they keep waiting. Well, well, well. Of course, now what's happened is that the ship has kind of gone out of business. Now nobody does anything anymore, really, by ship, unless you're going on a cruise. Now they've got the great airplane in the sky that's going to come. Yeah, and 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 they're waiting every day. They even have guys sitting up on on hills. As part of this cult, they sit up on hills day after day, and they change the guard. One guy sits all night, and the other guy comes out at 8 in the morning. He sits until 3 in the afternoon. Another guy sits until midnight. And they sit up there waiting for the great jet in the sky to come, this great, fantastic jet that is going to bring everything to them. They've all, you know, the, this is the new, this is the reformed cargo cult religion. They've switched from ships to planes. <laughs> and, uh, and they're sitting there waiting for the great ship in, in the sky to come and land. And they, you know what they've even done? A part of it, they've even, they've even gone so far 
as to as to build a, a, an airplane. Now, I've seen several pictures of it where they build a, a, an airplane, uh, their own version of an airplane, and the airplane is standing there on the hill. They built it out of palm fronds. They built it out of sticks and little things. It's pretty sad, you know. And it is their symbolic airplane. Just like in other religions, you know, that everybody expects this fantastic God to come and finally save them. They build images of it. And, and people go and they, they pray at it and they burn, you know, and they, they get down on their knees and yell and holler and all that. And, and one day, well, that's what they do with this airplane. And every day they go out there and they, they make little offerings to the great airplane that they've created. And yeah, I'm not inventing this. Everybody's looking at me and saying, you're, you're a nut, but it's quite true. And so they keep trying to convince them that's not going to happen. And, and, but it's very hard to convince them. There all kinds of uh, missionaries go there and say, no, no, that's not the one to believe in. Believe in this one. And, 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 and a couple of the, couple of the top, top guys in this uh, cargo cult religion say, well, yeah, but yours hasn't come yet either. Uh, how, do, how do I know what, what I just... Well, well, wait a minute. We, we know we got, we got this thing. You know? <laughs> There's a big argument, ideological argument going on out there. And what's worse, a couple of missionaries on a couple of islands out there have been converted. I mean, they went there, you know, from the all official with the things and that, and all of a sudden, the next thing you know, they're down there by that airplane. Because, uh, you know... <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing worse than a convert, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, the worst, I'll tell you. Uh, but but uh, uh, I've wondered, uh, that, that the fantastic thing that is inside of all of us, to imagine us somewhere else, doing something else. Imagining, oh, this is one of the reasons why everybody in, in America, all the hip people in America, think uh, Italian movies are the end. Because they're made in Italian, you know. They think, they think uh, that the, the, the French movies say so much more than American movies. And what gets you is that you go to France and they're dying. The hippies are just screaming a dime and hitting themselves. They, they stand in line waiting to see, and I'm talking about the, uh, the very in intellectual Frenchmen, are waiting in line to see Doris Day. They're waiting in line. Yeah, to see the worst kind of glop. They're waiting in line to see Jerry Lewis. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'll tell you, a Jerry Lewis picture. You know what you'd have to do to get me in to see a Jerry Lewis picture? Draft me. And even then, I might burn my card. I mean, I might. Buy, it might take a federal, a, a federal move to get me in to see Jerry playing something like the Little Elevator Man, or the, or, or the, 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 the Nutty Whoopie. Uh, you know, oh wow, holy smokes! And in France, uh, you probably read about it. In France, they think he says so much, just like we think a lot of the junk that comes out of France says so much, and they don't go, you know across the street to see it in France. And it's part of the same cargo cult. And it's another stripe of it, you know. It's another, another scene. You know, speaking of, uh, of these joints, though, I have often wondered about what, uh, what kind of whiskey they... How that really tasted. That stuff which, you, you know, you see Gary Cooper and he walks in looking long at the... Did you see that great movie uh, that Gary Cooper did? The, you know, it never made it. And the reason it didn't make it was because Gary Cooper did one of the one of the first real takeoffs on westerns that was genuinely done, and it was ahead of its time. I think if the guys who who uh, who made that picture were to bring it back again, it would it would make a billion dollars. And you know, people call Cat Ballou a takeoff on a western. That's no takeoff on a western. Oh come on! No, a takeoff on a western must be done in the classical western style. Slightly out of focus. Now that's a real takeoff. 
For example, this movie that, that Gary Cooper made years ago, I saw it recently on late, late television, and it was, it, it just didn't stop. I mean, there was not one moment that, 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 that didn't have a great, it, it just, just, it just stood out. And it was true satire, because they never pointed it up. Everything we do today has to be, you know, they pound it down and beat it down and they underline it. I'm surprised that movies are not coming out today with canned laughter on them. I think one will. I really, I seriously do, because, because uh, Camp Baloo I thought was about as funny, believe me, as a rubber crutch in a Florida typhoon. Uh, it just didn't make it. Uh, and everyone's... Uh, uh, I guess maybe people who think that kind of stuff is funny really have no sense of humor at all. You know, that, uh, you know that's quite conceivable. That, uh, that people who think that kind of uh, very, very obvious, oh, so obvious, Cat Baloo, what are some of the other ones? Uh, I didn't laugh three times and say uh, twice. In fact, I haven't laughed yet at... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at that, at the Pink Panther syndrome. Uh, not, not. I'm not talking about the cartoons, which are much better than the movies. Uh, I've never laughed at any of these. Uh, I saw, I saw a, another movie that everybody assured me was one of the funniest things I was going to see in, in uh, 150 years, and I went there, and it was terrible. You know, it's it's awful to find that your ears are asleep before you even sit down in a movie. I took one look at the screen. Now, oh, oh, it's one of those. A delightful camp. You know, that kind of... A delightful romp. Yes, indeed. Oh, wow. What's new Pussycat? One of the, one of the great all-American bores of our time. Uh, because it's so overdone, so precious, and so uh, underlined. Everything is underlined. And all I, all, I, all, all I needed was the sound of canned laughter behind Peter Sellers' inept performance in that. Uh, we had a little... Well, anyway, getting back to, to a real satire, the name of this movie, well, it's something Jones, Along Came Jones. Along Came Jones. Do you remember that movie? Gary Cooper. What a fantastic scene. Can you imagine? It started out... Da, 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 cha, da, cha, da. And they played it straight. Oh, yeah. It took... It, maybe that's why it didn't make it, because a lot of guys did... Another great Western satire that was made was Liberty Valence. Boy, those two movies, if they played those two back-to-back, -back, and if you really think you've got a sense of humor, believe me, man, you go see the... And you're seeing how it's really done. I'll never forget. John Wayne, uh, that scene when... <laughs> John Wayne and the walk down, they have their big firing scene. And, well, that's, that's another... That's another and, you know, that was done beautifully. Uh, but, but Along Came Jones was done so great because cause, cause, cause Gary Cooper had that great blank face. It wasn't really a blank face. It was an enigmatic face, which is not blank at all. Enigmatic. It was vaguely like those idols that you see on Easter Island. Now, you can't call those faces blank. All you can call them is, is uh, enigmatic, brooding, uh, it, it, just as though there is something fantastic going on underneath, but it ain't going to be shown. That's all. Well, it started out, you remember that scene? It started out, da, 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 cha, da, cha, da, cha, da. And you see this dusty trail and these two lone figures riding along on these two cow ponies. Da, 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 cha, da, cha, da, cha. The wind is blowing down from the hills. And slowly we begin to dolly in and we see the dusty face 
that long, gaunt American face of Gary Cooper, the frontier's man. And they're riding low in the saddle, he and his buddy. And they've been going a long way. You can just see they've gone a long way, and the dust is trailing. Cloppity, 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 clop. And they go up over a rise, see, and they stop. And the guy who was with Gary Cooper, his dusty old pal, turns to him and says, What's that? Gary looks down and says, that's one. I don't know. Don't rather know. And they both look down for a long moment. And his little pal says, What's the name of that town? Can you make out that, that sign? Gary looks really squints. He says, It looks like it's uh, Moore's, Moore's City or something. The other one sort of looks off into the distance, rocks back and forth. He says, we should not be within 500 miles of Moore City. <laughs> and automatically you think something's going wrong. And Gary takes off his hat and he scratches his head a little bit. He says, I know we should have turned left when we come to the river. When we come to that river 500 miles back, we should have turned left instead of right. Da 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 cha da cha da da da. The two lone strangers go into the town. Da 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 da. One of the great lines. One of the great. One one of the great moments of all is Gary Cooper. Gee, this was. This made Walter Mitty look like greasy kid stuff. Because he really made a point. He comes going, and, and, and all the way down into the town, the little pal is yelling at Gary Cooper. You just don't expect to see it. He says, you are the worst cowboy I ever saw. What do you mean? 500 miles were out of my way. And Gary said, well, yeah, I just figured we'd turn right. He said, well, for, for, for a bronco buster. He said, and he said, well, I'm, you know, he's sort of struggling along, and he walks into the saloon. And, and all of a sudden, 35 guys turn around and they get this scared look on their face. And Gary stands here for a minute and he looks at him. Tugs up his belt. See, what he doesn't know is that the initials on his saddle are the same initials as a top, fantastically dangerous outlaw. And they think it's him. And here is this inept guy. He straightens up and he walks up to the bar and says, uh, I'll have whiskey. The man behind the bar says, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. How much you want? And he pours him a great big one. He, he had the bottle. He, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He says, Thank you. And then he goes striding on out. That long, tall, lanky, straight face with those cold blue eyes. It is Gary Cooper. The new killer has come to town. Well, I've always wondered what they what they drank, you know, in that whiskey. How did it taste? Well, there is a description in a book called Little Big Man by Thomas Berger. You know how they made that real rotten whiskey? The kind of stuff they called red eye? That they sold to the Indians? That they sold to the cowpokes? That they sold to the, to, to, to the rustlers and the guys that just came in and said, Whiskey! 
and they gave him this shot, you know, for 10 cents. Well, they took this stuff. It was raw alcohol. And they and, and this is an actual fact. Raw alcohol, they mixed it with a little maple syrup to give it that color, you know. And then they put a ladle in each barrel. They put a cup full of gunpowder, black gunpowder. They'd mix it all up and it'd get a little sting. And then once in a while, if the guy really was unprincipled, and this is a fact, they used to put rattlesnake heads in it to let it cook for a while. That's the truth. And then they would drain it off the barrel, and they would put it in those bottles, you know, that, that you always see John Wayne throwing at the glass, you know, throwing at the mirror. They'd put it in those bottles, and these guys would come in there and drink this rot gut. And that's why they called it rot gut. And so when Gary Cooper comes in there and says, Whiskey. Down the hatch it goes. It's gunpowder. It's fermented snakehead. It's just a little touch of... Maple sugar and a great big gallop of straight raw grain alcohol that's about five minutes old. <sighs> Give me another and I'm going to get out on the trail. No wonder they were quick on the trigger. That does awful things to a man's teeth.